Oftentimes we think the toughest things that we go through, they're just nasty. But when we look back, you give it enough time, you realize, oh, that's, that's why I went through that lesson. You know, I grew up in a small town, had a great mom, great dad, everything was going great, and then my, my father passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And it was devastating for our family. So uh, at a really young age, at nine years old, the opportunity to escape that negative emotion into drugs presented itself. At 16, I dropped out of school. By the time I was 17, I was ex experimenting with more dangerous drugs. And at 18, I jumped on a Greyhound bus and I left that small community that I was, I was in and I went to the larger community. I would have been one of those people that you look at and kind of go, that guy's a write-off. And all of this negative life experience, I ended up kind of flipping it. And I found myself, in less than 12 years, going from that guy who collected cans, pushing a shopping cart, to being a successful entrepreneur. So I said, well, wait a minute, I got a good story. I enjoy telling it. How can we create a national campaign where we're telling that story across the country? When you look at the shopping cart, the shopping cart is that, is that sort of, it's the end of the line. It's the thing that we're trying to avoid. We have an opportunity in this country to get in front of homelessness. The best place to support youth homelessness is before it happens. You start off a campaign like this not knowing what kind of impact you're gonna have. I remember I got the call from Shot and being acknowledged and, and isolated as one of 50 Canadians. Uh, it made me proud. And so being given that award helps us get other people to care about the things that are important to the push for change. Inside each and every one of us is something extraordinary. If you only knew for a moment what you could accomplish, if you just kept your feet moving. My Mortgage by First National lets you see more and do more by allowing you to manage your mortgage anywhere, anytime. Our mobile-friendly site gives you access to more information about your mortgage than ever before. Get deeper insight into your mortgage details by viewing your amortization schedule, annual statements, renewal agreement, or property tax account. Want to use your payment privileges or make changes to your mortgage payment? You can easily change your payment date, payment frequency, or even use your payment privileges. Want to know how you can pay down your mortgage faster? From the touch of a button, you can use the Pay Down Scenario Builder to see how you can use prepayments to pay your mortgage down sooner. Want to know the status of your My Mortgage request? Check out the online request section on your mortgage details page. Still have questions or need to get a hold of us? Send us a message online or call us. Managing your mortgage has never been so easy. Log into My Mortgage today at mymortgage.firstnational.ca. Hey friends, uh, good old, good morning to those in the West and good afternoon to those in the East. Uh, welcome back to this uh, session of the Level Up podcast series. 
I am uh, super stoked today. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, the guest that I have today over the years has become a, uh, a close friend of mine and, and someone I admire, um, you know, very much. Um, his story is, is extraordinary. Uh, my guest today, Joe Roberts, um, you know, grew up at a very young age in, in Ontario and early on had some events that happened that uh, took him to sort of the darkest areas of life and ultimately led him to the poorest postal code in uh, British Columbia, the streets of Vancouver, uh, Maine and Hastings, right at the corner of Pigeon Park there, what they call Skid Row. Um, soon Joe entered into a, um, or continued his way into a spiral of uh, homelessness and despair, uh, the addiction uh, with all the regular drugs, uh, LSD, cocaine, uh, and ultimately uh, heroin. And his story today is about his his comeback, um, you know, uh, him turning the actual, um, you know, situation around over the years and, and creating an extraordinary life. If we look at Joe today, uh, just to kind of go through uh, some of his um, accomplishments, Joe is a, a very accomplished professional speaker. He is a award-winning advocate for mental health, homelessness, and recovery. He is the author of multiple books, uh, The Push for Change, uh, Seven Secrets of Profit from Adversity, um, of which we're going to give some away today. He's been recognized by McLean's Magazine as one of 10 Canadians who uh, will make a difference. He's also won the Ontario's Premier Award for uh, business. Uh, he has been a very successful entrepreneur uh, where he has uh, built companies to extraordinary uh, heights. Uh, and on top of all that, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the Laurentian uh, University. So I am thrilled to welcome uh, my dear friend, Mr. Joe Roberts. Joe, good morning and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Gary. I'm real glad that you didn't mention my criminal record. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, well you know what? Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that along the uh, along the story. You, you've come a long ways, my friend, and uh, and we are we are so happy to to have you. So, Joe, maybe maybe just sort of jumping right in because there's so much I want to cover today, and and I I know the audience is going to get so many nuggets and so many great takeaways and some inspiration from this. But in order to sort of like look at where you're at today, let's start from where you you came from and and and. So we're going to tell the story of, of you as a young boy. Before we do, though, we've all just come through the last 14 months mm -hmm. of a very difficult period. COVID-19 uh, has been difficult for all of us. Um, you and I were speaking off screen about Dr. Drew Pinsky, who we had on this program, talking about COVID-19 and the devastation and how it's like living with, you know, or like a drug addict being socially isolated. Tell me, in, in, in your opinion, um, what was the last kind of 14 months um, like for you? Yeah, well, like a lot of people, uh, Gary, you know, when it first hit, there was panic. And, uh, you know, most of uh, what I do today is a professional conference speaking. And so literally in, you know, one week, we watched, I don't know, 40 or 60 events just evaporate. And so there was this this panic that set in. But but I quickly found myself in very emotional, uh, emotional, familiar territory. And what's kind of ironic about the whole experience uh, for me is it was like being back on the street, you know, and, you know, so many people over the years, Gary, have asked me, what's it, what was it like being homeless? Well, it's kind of like this. You're, you're filled with uncertainty. Um, you know, you're disconnected from, from, from family and friends. Um, you're going through, you know, this uncertainty and hopelessness. Um, things seem really hard. Um, 
you know, it's difficult when you're in those situations to make healthy choices. And, you know, I went to bed every night anxious and woke up with problems that didn't have solutions. And so in a lot of ways, you know, when it hit, it's like, wow, okay, I've, you know, I've been here before. I know what this is like. And because I'd been through that experience, I knew what to do next. Um, people who have who have really been hit hard with with what's what's going on haven't necessarily had the coaching or understanding on what to do next. And that emotional uncertainty throws us for a spin. And then oftentimes what happens is it paralyzes us. So what ended up happening, though, is um, I kept my feet moving. You know, I kept taking action in the face of negative emotion. It wasn't that I wasn't still scared and anxious, but I thought, no, there's there's a, there's something for me to do here. I'm really passionate about the people stuff. And so mm -hmm. by summertime, companies were asking me to come and speak on resilience and adversity. Um, by the fall, I was delivering programs on stress and overwhelm. And today I'm busier than I've ever been. Um, but, you know, I also have a couple of advantages. One of the things is I am although I'm a public figure and I spend a lot of time in front of people, I'm an introvert. And so I get my energy alone. People who get their energy outside, you know, going to a hockey game or a party or a dinner party or a bar or something. Yeah. I think it's probably been tougher on them, but mostly what I focus on is what can I do today? What can I do right now? And so, and that's what I do a lot of, you know, a lot of coaching and talking to friends as a mentor is it just get people to take small actions because when you take those small actions, it, it's interesting, but that the emotion just kind of dissipates. And what ends up happening is we find ourselves, you know, in a day or two in a very different emotional um, situation. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and it's been a very tough uh, kind of 12 or 14 months for, for all of us. And we're going to talk today about mental health and, uh, and addiction and uh, both those uh, collectively and uh, independently. Before we do, uh, Joe, what is is, you know, really extraordinary is, you know, you won an award called the Courage Comeback Award uh, mm -hmm. that was put on by uh, every year by by Coast Mental uh, Health and, uh, you know, uh, the foundation here in Vancouver and, and where they pick sort of an individual per year. Uh, you won the category for chemical dependency. And uh, it's a very, very, very difficult award to win. Uh, and it's only for those with incredible um you know stories and, and comeback so i want to kind of get into that and talk about that um before we do though let's just sort of shape it for our audience so you grew up in ontario small town ontario things were going along swimmingly you were with your mom and your dad your best friend in your life was was your father and uh everything was going you know as as life should for uh for an eight or nine year old and at eight years old your father who was very young had a massive heart attack and died and, mm -hmm. and looking back today, I know you've described that as being, you know, one of those early emotional triggers that, you know, that had you so angry that you just started making poor choices. And of course, that just manifested. Can you talk to us about those early days and uh, that upbringing? Yeah, I think it's kind of like, you know, wandering down the road of life as a child, minding my own business and life life us. You know, and it's, you know, it's, it's just that classic um, uninvited adversity. Lost dad when I was eight. Um, and really never dealt with the trauma. When we talk about addiction today, I, I, I don't think you can have that conversation without talking about trauma. Trauma is the root cause, you know, and that's that's why, you know, the pandemic is kind of scary because there's a lot of people that are going through, you know, trauma. And, and um, anyways, at uh, my mom remarried really quick and my stepfather wasn't anything like my dad. My dad was this guy who used to say things to me like, I love you, you can be anything. You know, he, he spoke to my potential, my possibility. 
my stepfather who came along, you know, second there, we needed him for various reasons. One, we weren't insured. So we went from lower middle class to poverty overnight. And so mom was terrified. She had to raise three kids, age five, eight, and 11. And so the stepfather was, I guess, uh, what she felt her best move was. The only problem is he wasn't anything like my dad. He wasn't supportive. He didn't even want to be a father to us. And, and, you know, instead of saying, I love you, you can be anything, he would say things to us like, you're stupid, you're dumb. You know, we talk a lot about the impact of bullying. Uh, I had a bully that lived in the house. Yeah. And so what happened at a real young age is my possibility became hidden from me. And I started to believe that nonsense. And the thing I know today, Gary, is that if you can get a kid or anyone to believe a lie about who they are, you can limit their impact on, you know, and, and on what they do and where they, they end up in life. When the opportunity presented itself at the age of nine, my brother and older friends were getting high and I joined. And I didn't join because I was rebellious or I wanted to get loaded or any of that. I joined because I wanted to fit. Right. I wanted friends. And I went home under the influence and my stepfather came home from a day of drinking and, you know, he he tried to intimidate and and uh, threaten me. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't afraid of him. You know, I was protected under that bubble of substance use. And so it was a place I ran to for the next 15 years. You know, and, and in the beginning, it's interesting that substance uh, use actually helped me cope. It just, it just had such negative consequences as I got older. By the time I was 15, I got kicked out of the house. 16, I, you know, I dropped out of school. 17, I went to jail for the first time. But I think the, the real key question when we're talking about mental health and youth or, or, uh, or, or anything related to the homelessness issue is ask the question, what happened before this happened? And in my case, my case is a, you know, it's, it's typical family conflict, early childhood trauma, the beginnings of mental health issues led me in, you know, to, to more up on that continuum of being vulnerable for uh, abuse. And by the time I was 19, I, I escaped that little town and jumped a Greyhound bus and ended up coming out to Vancouver. And I was a kid and it was out of the pot and into the fire. And over the next several years, my, you know, my life just completely unraveled in the downtown east side of Vancouver. So Joe, let's just go back there because I really like to use this this show as sort of like some triggers and you know there's nobody listening to this program right now that hasn't got a problem hasn't you know something going on in their life or has had one mm -hmm. in the past or is concerned right now with the behavior of their kids maybe their kids are distant or rebellious or this um you know this this COVID-19 period has been very difficult or or maybe they just think their kids it's totally okay marijuana is illegal now and the kids just smoking a little bit of pot you know, what are the signs, do you think, if you're sitting here right now, because we've all been through it at different levels, what are the signs as a parent, you know, and, and if there was signs, could your mom at that point uh, have prevented those signs? Or what advice would you give to someone listening who is right now on pins and needles thinking this sounds like eerily similar to my situation? Yeah, it's tough. Um, <clears throat> so I'll give you my perspective, but I'm not a clinician, a doctor, and I don't work inside the sector. So I'm just a guy with lived experience. What I've done as a dad is really tried to strengthen my communication with my 17-year-old daughter who went to school in Vancouver and was surrounded by absolutely everything. Um, I, I, I'm a firm believer in supporting a person and challenging behavior. Um, in the people that I have in my world who were continued in active addiction, and st some still do, uh, I support, I say, again, I support the person, but I challenge the behavior. In other words, you're fine, 
But if you've got a challenge and, and you want help from me, I'm, I'm here to have that conversation. If uh, a young person is involved in substance use, abuse, addiction, they keep changing the name so I, I can't keep up. And it looks like you've lost control as a parent, seek help. You know, first seek help maybe for yourself in, in, in places like Al-Anon or Narnon, um, but seek family counseling or intervention because oftentimes our, our intuitive first response is wrong. And, and, and it's, not, it's not because uh, we don't care, it's just that it's not necessarily gonna work. But I mean, if I, if I go right back to the first thing I said, it's I wanna have an open and honest dialogue. And that's what I did with my daughter. Um, and just let her know that no matter what she does, I love her. Right. Um, but there's certain things that she could get involved in that you know would be scary to me. And by creating that open dialogue, uh, I'm able to talk to her about stuff. Um, and the, the last thing I, I I chose not to do is is to forbid everything. I'm very conservative when it comes to alcohol and drug consumption, you know, because I know how quickly it can devastate your life, especially if you are using it as a response to emotional stuff, right? And it can you it can go from you know you're just having a drink now and again to all of a sudden you're stuck in a bottle for a decade or two. So having those yeah just having that open dialogue and discussion with uh with my daughter and letting her know that you know i love her no matter what my door is always open mm. um, yeah i'll make one comment on that uh, a lot of people on this on this broadcast know that you know uh we have massive uh drug addiction and mental um health issues uh in in our family and very close in our family and uh i made a huge mistake for 15 years where i had a you know, uh, my, my brother, who I loved dearly, was was quite sick uh, and, and you know, addicted and suffering mental uh, health issues. And all I did is get pissed off at him. Like, come on, you're better than that. What are you doing? Are you an idiot? Yeah. Come on, Greg. Like, get, get it together. Like, I, that's not who you were. And I just gave him shit and gave him shit. And, and I realized that over those years, I pushed him deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was, it was so there was so much despair and hurt. It was very hard. And then one day something just clicked. The, 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 the switch went on and I go, whoa, 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 hang on. Let's try this differently. And I went, just dude, I love you. I'm always here for you regardless. It's going to be a tough road. You know, I get it. Lots of people go through it. And it was still hard because I was so against this behavior in so many situations in those in those darkest days but the minute i just started loving him just absolutely yeah. loving him like unconditionally i'm here for you the entire world changed worth started to come back you know he didn't feel isolated from me and i become his closest advocate on the face of the planet and it was simply me just doing what you said and even when i absolutely abhorred his behavior i said it's okay bro i'm still here for you i love you and that was a yeah. changing so thank you for for sharing that. Well, and, and you know what? And, and, and to add to that, you're bang on. There's a great book out there that I always recommend parents read. It's by Johan Harry. It's called Chasing the Scream. And it talks about, you know, um, again, it, the, the simple palette is support the person, challenge the behavior. But this book gives you an insight into addiction at such a different level. And addiction is a shame based. Yeah, there it is. Addiction is a, a shame based. Um, you know malady and and by by making the person wrong all you do is further perpetuate the cycle of using and abusing and so it, it, until you collapse that crap and i think that's where we need to go 
uh, you know, uh, right across the entire country and throughout our Western culture is to take the, it, it's really not a moral issue. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a public health crisis. Right. You know, if you think about it, addiction, you know, you'd never go to the hospital with diabetes or heart disease and have a doctor scold you for, you know, maybe not making the right food choices or making the right uh, exercise choices. Could you imagine a world like that, Gary? If you went to the hospital with diabetes or yeah. or cancer or, or or coronary heart disease, and and they treated you like that, but that's how we in our culture treat addiction, and I, I just don't think it's the path forward. Yeah. I think we need to rethink our our empathic leadership perspective of this core issue, and when we do, that's when we'll really start to win on mass. Yeah, amen. Uh, listen, for those of you on the broadcast on the broadcast today, uh, we have a hashtag. If you want to hashtag it, it's hashtag level up like Joe. Hashtag level up like Joe. So, guys, obviously, anyone who makes a comment, or we're going to take fifty of you. Joe actually autographed uh, his most recent book, Push for Change, and we're going to send it out to uh, to all of you. All you got to do is make a comment, post it, tag us uh, on uh, social media. Can't wait for your feedback. So, Joe, here you were. Now you were uh, you were incarcerated. Uh, by the time you were 17, you got out, you're on the uh, Vancouver uh, east side, you're living under uh, the bridge, and uh, you are uh, penniless, you are hopeless, and you are uh, desolate. Um, tell me what that was like and what the hell was going on in your mind. Yeah, well, it, again, it was a lot like, you know, last year, just fear, uncertainty, hopelessness, despair, depression, and you know, lots and lots and lots of poor choices. I, I was that guy you see pushing a shopping cart, mm. dirty and disheveled. And, I, you know, by this time I had graduated from, you know, pot and soft drugs or whatever to alcohol and to, to Coke and heroin. And heroin was my drug of choice. And one of the, the things about heroin is you go through withdrawal when you, you know, you stop taking for any period of time. And I remember about three days before Christmas, 89, uh, 1989, I was sitting in Pigeon Park, the, right in the epicenter of the downtown east side and i was rocking back and forth going through opiate withdrawal you know and the only way i can describe this is it's like the worst flu you've ever had times a thousand you know sweats and the aching bones dry mouth high level of anxiety and i needed 10 bucks but i didn't want to rob or steal because that's just not the kind of kid i was and i looked down at, at my um at my boots and I came up with what I thought was a good idea. And, and uh, when the bar opened at 11, I went in and I sold, I sold those boots. It was the only item I had left in the world that was worth anything. Wow. And I remember walking out, you know, Gary, when, when, when I talk to people and they're going through depression and hopelessness, I get that. Dude, I get that feeling. Because I remember walking up East Hastings, tears streaming down my face, thinking, how did I get here? Bootless, homeless, hopeless, just had no nowhere to turn and here's the thing you may not identify with the circumstances of you know being a heroin addict and bootless in in, in east vancouver but everyone listening to this today has been in those, those days where it gets dark and here's what i learned you know it's like in that moment where i just didn't want to be alive anymore i did something different and i reached out and i you know and i asked for help and i said a little prayer and I, you know, I never describe myself as a guy who's religious, but I've always believed in something. And I asked for, I asked for, two, I, I, I'm, the prayer kind of went like, you know, give me a second chance. I don't deserve it. 
I really don't. But if you give me a second chance, I promise I won't waste the opportunity and I'll do something to pay it forward. And, um, and let's talk about that here. Um, I don't want to interrupt your thoughts there, but I really want to get into, you made a promise right there that if you, if you get a check and chance, if there's, if there's a chance, if, if there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, intervening intervention, powerful force, you know, someone to send you something to get you there that you would one day pay it back. And you decided to pay it back with something called push for change. But obviously this entire life that you've created now about, you know, helping others through those dark days. Yeah. Well, there was a whole lot had to happen be before, uh, before the push really even came into focus. I needed to deal with the mental health. I needed to deal with the addiction. I needed to deal with, uh, you know, getting up off those streets and, and, uh, and moving forward. And so, you know, it, it's really interesting. A lot of times when my bio gets read, Gary, it sounds like I pulled my socks up and get on with it, but I'm here today because of over 10,000 people, people who were there for me to support me. You know, I remember back in Barrie before I left, I had this girl that I dated in grade 10 and I loved her to pieces. And uh, when we finally, you know, she broke up with me because my behavior was so erratic. That's when I ended up in Vancouver on the streets. But shortly before I, I got off the streets, I remember sitting on this park bench with this guy named Gus. And I remember he, him looking at me and saying, you know, Joe, there's more to you than you can see. And I don't know what it was about this guy. He just had this empathic wow. leadership, eh? And what was sitting in front of him that day, Gary, is a guy with dirty fingernails and matted hair and scruffy beard and yellow teeth and clothes that I've been wearing for months and a stink that comes from living outside and just a terrible personal hygiene. But he looked past all of that. And he said, there's more to you than you can see. You know, what I think is that great leaders, great parents, great grandparents, great entrepreneurs, they look at the world not as it is, but how it could be. You know, I'm here today because people believed and saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. And so today when I look at the world and I see people struggling, I look past the struggle. I look past the circumstances. I look past the micro and macro stuff that's going on. And I see potential. I see potential in them because I know that we're not defined by the crap that happens to us in life. We're so much more than that, man. You know, if we only knew how far we could go. But what happens is fear colors, you know, our, our emotions and, and, it's, and it keeps us small. Yeah, this is, I, I, honestly, the, the hair goes up in the back of my neck. As I said, not only, obviously, my, uh, my brother, but um, riddled throughout my family and you know, uh, in, in Pigeon Park, uh, my first cousin, um, you know, Kenny uh, did a heroin hotshot overdose and uh, and died uh, bought a lot of Pigeon Park uh, and also grew up in a very dysfunctional home. And, and there was huge challenges. Um, and it's you know, I loved what you said earlier. Uh, you said, uh, um, you know, what happened before this happened? And, and there's one thing, Joe, and I want to just address this and this might be controversial, but it pisses me off when I'm with somebody in a car or I'm driving through the Vancouver East side and people go, Oh yeah, look at all these freaking people and they dismiss them. Right. It's their own fault. They're doing drugs. That is so, so untrue in so many cases. Usually it's a very, very tough, you know, difficult upbringing. There's a family breakup. There's poverty. They go to get away to escape because they have nowhere else. They have mental health issues and then men mental health issues as in order to numb their pain, right? They start using, 
I look firsthand at my brother when he started using, it was because he didn't like the way he feel like life was mm -hmm. terrible, right? It was a way to escape. So people who say, well, they got there because they chose drugs in most cases, right? Yeah. But before that, they were a wonderful kid, just like all of us that, you know what, that just had a poor leadership or a bad family environment or, you know, a bad situation that got them there. I'd like you to speak on that because I think that's really important and misunderstood. I mean, I used to always go through Vancouver and people would say, well, why do you do that? Or why are you doing this? Or why are you doing that? And I'd say, just because I think it's, 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 it's incredible to help. I said, imagine what these people went through to, in order to get here and on, on the streets. And, and I can ask you about this and you're the first guy maybe ever that I've spoken to this about because, you know, you were there for what, was it seven years you were on the street? Yeah, off and on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, um, look, I, I totally get that people have biases in the way they see things. And that has a lot to do with, you know, the stories and messages that they got when they were growing up. The biggest work for me to do is to try and collapse some of that around stigma and judgment. And, but I totally understand why people do it. Um, it's a threat. It's, it's something they don't understand. It's different. And it's easy to say, well, you know, I've been successful in my, you know, career in my, my family and my, my place in the world and those people over there. But I think that, you know, when we really do get into empathic leadership, where we say what happened there, um, because I think it's incumbent upon us as a society to do our best to support people who are vulnerable, whether it's part their upbringing and part their choice. I, I don't, again, I go back to that health analogy. I don't really care if you came into the hospital with obesity and heart disease and diabetes. I don't really care what your behavior is. You're sick. I need to help you, you know? Um, and it, we're in a we're in a change right now, and I am excited about where we're going. You know, it took a generation to make drinking and driving uncool. You know, when I was growing up, drinking and driving was fun. Man, you got a box of beer and a you know, bag of ice, and you went and run over mailboxes, and then you go into school and tell people what you did in the weekend. Everybody would laugh. That is just not cool anymore. We've changed the way we think about those things. And I think that we're doing that now. And so I remain optimistic. And my role to play is to simply tell this lived experience story and point to the things that other people can relate to. You know, like when they were told they were stupid when they were a kid or they had this experience or they look at that time when they were 14 or 15, and it really could have gone either way for them. Had they not been that sports team or had that coach, mm. maybe they could have been, you know, um, glued to a pipe in the 100 block East Hastings. So tell us about the day. So you just shortly before you had the conversation, you just sold your boots for $10 and you met this remarkable man sitting on a bench. And he said, there's more to you than you can see. And once you sold those boots, it was actually a November night. It was evening in, in November. Yeah. It was raining in Vancouver. And November, you know, is never nice in Vancouver. As we all know, it's always raining and always cold. And you walked up the street, you know, tears streaming down your eyes, you know, your face, asking yourself how you got here. And then you did the one thing and I want to ask you why this was different and had you done this before, but you did the, the one thing that, you know, um, that, that came to mind and that was, you called your mom. Tell yeah. us about that and, and how that started and had you called her before and you just weren't ready. So she wasn't ready to respond or it was a tough well, thing or what happened? Mom and I always had a, a good relationship. Uh, even after I left the house, I left the house because I couldn't get along with my stepfather. He was violent, abusive, and I just I couldn't stand his crap anymore. But mom and I stayed connected. But when I went to Vancouver, I, oft, I often lied to mom 
about how bad my situation was because I didn't want her to worry. But finally, I'd you know been back into this corner. And I reached out and I you know I just begged her to uh, take me back. And by this time, her and the stepfather had divorced, so she had room in her house. And I went back to she she flew out the next day and and basically rescued me off the hunter block. I was 165 pounds. I had drug sores all over my face. And um, I remember she kissed me on the cheek. She said, let's get you the support you need and brought me back to Ontario. I entered into a detox facility in Kingston and then a full residential treatment program in Belleville. And after six months, I had this addictions counselor to trick me into going back to college. Uh, I tell this story. He tricked me because I, you know, I really thought I was dumb. And, you know, if you've made your mind up about the outcome, why would you bother taking any risky action to determine whether that's true or not? You've already made your mind up. Anyways, he, he got me to go to college and something wonderful happened. And I started to, you know, come into my own. It turns out I really wasn't dumb. You know, I was pretty exceptional. And I started to excel and I got A's and B's. And finally, after three and a half years, I walked across the stage at Loyalist. They said, Joe Roberts, Dean's List, you know. And I remember I had this section in the back of recovery people. They were bringing down the real estate values <laughs> and they were hooting and all because they knew, you know, they knew how far I had. This wasn't just graduation for me. Yeah. You know, and I went down where mom was sitting and she kissed me on the cheek. She said, I'm so proud of you. I want to, uh, that's amazing. I just, it's, I just, I, you know, I love listening to you, Joe. Um, I, it's something that I read that I just, I love. It made so much sense. Uh, when you're early days going through your recovery, they always say, well, it's, of course it is. It's a disease and we all know that, but they, they talk about, well, you know, alcoholism as a disease or drug addiction as a disease. So for you, Joe, and, and see if you remember this quote, this, this, this answer or not. So, uh, um, what happened when you, when you used, uh, drugs? You broke out in what? Oh, handcuffs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they always said, I'm addicted to drugs. I'll tell, you a funny story. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. I was I was speaking at uh, four years ago for the Ontario Provincial Police. And uh, and the waiter comes up. He says, you want a drink? And instead of saying, no, thank you, I said, I can't. And the guy says, well, why can't you have a drink? And uh, so now I'm in over my head. I got the commissioner on one side. I got the lieutenant governor on the other. And I said, I can't have a drink. I'm allergic to alcohol. He says, what kind of reaction do you have when you drink? I said, I break out in handcuffs. I look <laughs> over and the commissioner's almost spitting his drink out. But I look at this side and the lieutenant governor, I don't know if she didn't think it was funny or just didn't get it. But uh, yeah, that's, I love it. I, yeah, I, I heard story, that. I'm sticking to it. It's funny that this past year, I had friends of mine, we were talking about what do you miss most about COVID? And somebody said, I miss going camping. <laughs> I said, camping? I said, what do you miss about camp? I, I never understood camping. You know, ever since I got sober, I mean, I camped for a decade. Yeah. Camping to me is weekend homelessness for rich people. You know, I don't go camping. I might go for a walk in the park, but you'll catch me back at the Fairmont. I don't. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't yeah. volunteer to sleep out in the cold Too anymore. Funny. Too funny. So listen, I want to talk about, and there's so much I want to cover. I want to talk about, um, you know, mental illness, if we can get there, of course, yeah. I want to talk about uh, the push for change, most importantly. So we we talked about that promise. And you said, hey, if there's a second chance here, I promise you, I won't let you down. I'll do something good. And yeah. push for change. You wrote a book on it, but you actually walked across uh, Canada. You walked 9000 kilometers pushing a shopping uh, cart uh, across Canada and you were raising awareness and raising money 
for our most vulnerable, for our 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 youth, our teenagers, our homeless uh, teenagers. Uh, that that very you know uh, possibly um, at our our are dealing with exactly what you dealed with. It was near and dear to your heart. Tell us about the 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 um, the spark for uh, push for change. And then tell us about the actual walk itself. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, after graduating, I went out in the business world and I had all these transferable skills and I crushed it. And in less than 12 years, I went from a guy pushing a shopping cart to being on the cover of Canadian business. Yeah. I was the American, you know, the Canadian version of the American dream. But when I got to that place, Gary, I, I really wanted to do something to pay it forward. I, you know, I had a little bit of money. I bought back some of my time and I had some influence. I had some levers I could pull. And the thing that I love more than anything is telling a story, you know, giving people a perspective on their personal resilience. And, and, and I have this unique opportunity with lived experience to, to reshape the way people see some of the most important issues facing our, our country and, you know, our Western culture and the, and, and the planet. So um, after, you know, I, I succeeded, I, I stepped away from the, the corporate world and running my company and I sold off my controlling shares and I started to do speaking. And through this, this idea to do this national engagement project started to percolate. And I was on an airplane ride with my former business partner, Dr. Sean Richardson. You've, you've met, yeah, I've met Sean a couple times. Yeah. yeah. And we were flying to Calgary and I said, Sean, I want to inspire Canadians. I want to get them to think differently. Just about the stuff that we're talking about right now, mental health, early childhood trauma, family conflict, the things that put kids in that exposure um, that leads to them being homeless as a teen and then eventually as an adult. You know, if we're gonna address homelessness across you know, Canada and the United States, we've got to deal with the youth stuff first because that's where they come from, right? Sure. And so, you know, and in this conversation on this plane, I said, well, how could we inspire people? How could we raise money? How could we raise awareness? And Sean says, well, when Canadians want to raise money for things, they, they run across the country. And we were thinking about, of course, Terry Fox and, and Rick Hansen, these, you know, Canadian icons. And we, we were thinking about that. And, and, and Sean says, why don't you run across Canada? And I said, why don't you run across Canada? You know, at the time, I was 70 pounds bigger than I am now. I was a non-athlete. The idea of running across the second widest country in the world didn't appeal to me. right? <laughs> yeah. But, but then he said, he says, well, maybe you don't run, you walk. And I said, well, you know, what's your value proposition differential? How is it going to be different? What's going to be unique about this walk? He said, push a shopping cart. And it was like, oh, Oh, that's good. It's just a, it's a symbol of chronic homelessness. And then we just started, you know, spitballing. It was like, we can call it a push for change. Great. And so that was, you know, it was an airplane ride, literally like a 40 minute flight from uh, Abbotsford to uh, Calgary. And I was off, you know, I was just running with this great idea. And, you know, we, we, we built this beta shopping cart with kids from a local high school. And I did a trial walk from Calgary to Vancouver to get myself uh, mentally and physically prepared. And then over the next three years, we built out the campaign. We raised over a million dollars so that we could pay for the campaign. So our donations weren't paying for the, the actual trek. And finally, on the 1st of May 2016, I stood in Newfoundland after working for almost four years building this campaign. And, and Gary, that's where we, we, we intersected because I, I remember... Uh, you know, what was was working with you at, with the, the DLC groups across Canada when this was all sort of in that beta stage and we were, you know, we were building it. But finally, we got to that launch point and I was I, I remember the, the the anxiety and anticipation as I was standing in Newfoundland looking basically looking down at, at 9000 kilometers and over the next 17 months. 
um, I would walk across Canada. And, you know, to say I was, was 17 months was the uh, start to finish. And uh, I mean, you went through some incredibly, you know, uh, difficult times. The weather was, uh, was uh, violent in, in periods of the, the walk. And how far did you walk every day? I did. I woke up at five thirty every day, and I and I did twenty four kilometers, which was a minimum. Yeah. And and so that had us on track to do six days on, one day off, because you needed you needed to rest the body. And my biggest fear was was anybody going to care? Right. You know, we had spent. I had you know I had I had put a whole bunch of business stuff on hold to do this, and I'd thrown in a you know just a ton of my own time and energy. But I wanted to make sure that we had an impact, and honestly, I wasn't sure we had all of that right. But I just kept walking. You know, I kept taking steps in the face of that negative emotion, and you know something extraordinary began to happen as I slowly worked my way across the Maritimes and eventually into Ontario. In right. fact, I think, uh, I think Gary, we, we have a video. Yeah. I was that, just going to say, tell me about the hardest periods for push for change. And I, I think there was a video that, uh, that we have queued up. Maybe is that, uh, you want to roll? Yeah. Let's go that video. And then I'll tell you about, I'll tell you about one of the hardest days in the campaign. Yeah. The video, the video is great. It, it shows how, you know, how well Canadians responded to it. And it, it it's, it's actually pretty inspiring. Cool. Let's roll that, Dave. This is for, you know, every kid in this country who feels different, who gets stuck. And it's our responsibility to reach out and help those children transition safely into adulthood. You know sometimes... Coming over the bridge, here we are. And there's Joe. Push for change. Have courage to fight.
I'm sure glad that was four minutes because I had to go through the whole leaky eye syndrome, get my tissues, wipe them down, and recompose myself, Joe. You know, Gary, when I think about those days, what inspired me wasn't walking 9,000 kilometers or 11 million steps. It was how Canadians responded. Man, I'll tell you what, I re-fell in love with this country. Whether you're born here or this, this is your home or you're visiting right now, we live in an extraordinary place. You know, this we are more than lighthouses and lobsters and rivers and lakes and sweeping wheat fields of the prairies and the snow-capped mountains. We are a collection of people with values who come together to tackle some big issues. And the push for change made me just, you know, love people more because they came out to their driveways and along the sides. You saw the people that supported us. It's just amazing. And, you know, we raised, um, I think, about $600,000. And we got to Vancouver, the U.S., the United Association gave me a check for a million bucks to continue our, our charity work across the country. And, you know, we had full support of the, the, the police forces and we got to speak to over 100,000 kids. It was just amazing. You know, and when I go back to that conversation, I had with Gus on that park bench, a guy who, you know, on a day when there was just this dirty homeless guy, this junkie in front of him, he saw something, you know, that there was more to me. The thing is, Gary, I'm not special. I've done some special things, but I'm made up of the same stuff as anyone else. And we all have that. We all have that ability. If we, we simply got up off that park bench or that couch and take some steps forward, you know, we, we can make a difference and change the world around us. Yeah, it's just uh, absolutely incredible. Do you, uh, you used to have a, um, you used to have the, the, the I am Canadian chat. I know you're so proud. Yeah. Of so, do you still do yeah. that or do you still, is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I love it because it's, uh, I, I, there was a comment on here that just actually inspired me to ask you about it. It just said like, so Canadian, so, so amazing. Yeah. I'm deeply patriotic. I really love, I think that we're a distinct culture. And, you know, when I left, I had two, two fears in Newfoundland, Gary. One was I might going to make it. I was 49 years old when I started, I was 50 when I finished. So that's a lot of pounding. And I remember when I got into Northern Ontario, for those of you who know the geography of Canada, Highway 17 between Sault Ste. Marie and Thunder Bay is one of the most treacherous during the summer. Forget about the winter. And that's where we were in the middle of winter. We, I was walking over Lake Superior. I had minus 40 temps, uh, 70 kilometer an hour winds coming off Superior. And I started to feel sorry for myself because I woke up, my ankles and knees were hurting. And one day I went out and, I, you know, I was committed to this. There was no real wiggling out of this. I had to keep going. But I was pissing and moaning, and I, and I got up, and I started to walk. And I started, but my mood started to improve around 10, 15K. And at the end of that, that walk, I was standing in front of the Wawa Goose. And I remember looking up at this stupid goose. And I don't know what it is about Wawa Goose that's iconically Canadian, but it is. It seems to make it into every Canadian video. And, and as I stood there, something hit me all at once, you know. I live in a country where you can go from Skid Row to CEO, you know, a country that paid for my detox, that paid for my college education, continues to subsidize my health care. And as I stood there in the shadow of the scoops, all things Canadian came rushing home to me. But we live in one of the best places on planet Earth. And I know that because, you know, my name is Joe and I am Canadian. Yeah. And you know what else? In that moment, you know, and I was, I was, I was, again, I was weeping with, with joy. I knew two things that the worst was over. It was behind me, that I was bigger 
than the challenge of Northern Ontario in the winter. And I feel that way right now with the pandemic. I feel that the worst, we're not out, but the worst is behind us. And if we can get this far, we can make it. And seven months later, I walked into the downtown east side. And uh, I remember walking down and for, you know, for years when I walked down there, Gary, I felt ashamed with the shopping cart I had. But not on that day, man. I had that shopping <laughs> cart and I had that crowd behind me. And I went past that bench I sold my boots on, that bench that I made that promise on. And when I got to the library that day, the UA gave us a million bucks. Yeah. It's amazing what you can do if you just, you know, just have the courage to keep walking on the days when you want to give up. Un unbelievable. Yeah, just just absolutely mesmerizing. So, Joe, we have about uh, maybe 11 minutes left. And um, and I want to, you know, maybe talk about anything that you still want to, you know, touch on and get to. Um, I think the impactfulness of leadership and the messaging and I think those those little comments like that, that one on the bench from Gus, where he said there's more to you than you can see. And the one opportunity that we have as we, um, you know, live our life every day and we run into people who we don't know what they're going through or, or what the situation is or what they're fighting with right now, uh, how uh, just by being kind or providing, you know, a, a lift up rather than being uh, judgmental can make extraordinary uh, differences in, in one's life, can can ignite that that spark or that difference of change. Maybe give us your thoughts on that. Like, yeah, uh, definitely. And so I wanna, I wanna, I wanna sort of take that one and park it for a second because there's one thing about the push for change that I need to complete, and that is that I get the attaboys and the slaps on the back for you know walking across the country and being the spokesperson for this important cause. But there was so many people that helped me, and one in particular was Marie. Now Marie was the campaign director, and she was in my corner the whole way, and she would put in 14-hour days and invested yeah there she is and invested a whole bunch of her time um you know to make this thing happen and if it wasn't for her and her team that walk would have never happened and i'm real fond of, of the work that she did and she put in i'm also fond of marie because we share our life uh, as husband and wife but i'm also it's not just our shared values and the push for change that connect us we're also connected by the past crazy yeah. well marie, i know hold on hold on gary okay Marie is the same girl from grade 10. <laughs> oh my God. No, crazy. The girl who believed in me, the for my first girlfriend, my high school crush. But after 28 years, we found each other again. And just before the push for change actually took off. And if it wasn't for her talents and skills, uh, it wouldn't have happened. And today, you know, she's actually downstairs on the call right now. She's my my best friend. She's my partner in crime. She's my cheering section. And I wouldn't be anything without her. And uh, it's just one of those, it's a love story. You know, on the, on the management stuff, I believe in one thing, and that's a possibility mindset. You know, I believe that anything is possible. My life is a, is a Disney story. And it's because people believed in possibility. They saw it in me. Possibility is the opposite of probability. Probability is typically fear-based, the way we see the world, or pattern-based. We recognize patterns. Right. And this is important to our evolution as a species. We needed to recognize patterns to know where the berries were and the fish were and in order to, you know, uh, do these cycles. Problem is, is that recognizing patterns, it's void of innovation. And right now, more than ever, it's innovators and disruptors who are actually going to change the world. And so Einstein said, that, uh, that, you know, the greatest thing is imagination. Possibility is looking at ourselves or the world, not as it is, but how it could be. In 2006, 
there wasn't such thing as a mortgage broker or was there there was a bunch of banks and they had money and then along came you know a couple of guys from poco who said well wait a minute there's an opportunity here innovation and possibility mindset is what put us on the moon it's what drove dr king to deliver a speech about racial equality in Washington DC in the late 60s. And it's what drove a one-legged boy from Poco to want to run across the country and impact us to even to this day. Possibility is where I want to be as a dad. It's where I want to be as a leader. It's where I want to be as a speaker. I don't care what you're showing me right now. I know there's something bigger in you. And my job as a coach, a mentor, and a leader is to draw that out of you. And if I do that, I win, you win, we all win. I need to guard that because it's real easy to get in to complaining and to get into recognizing your patterns and say, if it's like that today, it'll be like that tomorrow. Uh, I disagree. I'm, I'm the embodiment of a possibility mindset and work that people gave me. So yes, embedded in that is empathy, but it's really guarding the way we think about how we see ourselves and the world around us. When we're afraid and we're going through crisis and change, we see the world through probability, not possibility. Mm. And so my greatest challenge to, to someone watching this who's going through a week is shift to a possibility and then take some action because the action will then validate the emotion. And just like that you know, test or project you avoided in high school, you realize you had the skill set the whole time to be successful. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, what an enlightening story. And I'm so grateful that you're here today, Joe, too. Uh, share it with us. Joe, let's talk about um, you and what's next for you. Um, you know, now you're you're talking about, you know, you're sharing your story and you're talking about, you know, getting people through those those darkest days and and identifying the possibility in them, right? Letting them know that they're, they're, they're more. How do you define, how do you define greatness? Like for you, like what, what, when do you know, like I've achieved everything that I ever wanted to achieve or, or is that even possible? Yeah, it's that's that's a tough one, eh? Because you gotta you gotta balance desire and contentment. And desire, you know, unchecked is the enemy of contentment. <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's like I, I'm hungry, I'm happy, but I'm hungry. Okay. I'm happy, but I'm hungry. Okay. Um, I think that the greatest uh, display of a of a of a, of a human being is when they're in service to others. You know, and so the, the people I admire the most who, you know, they may have a lot of means and success, but they're reaching out and they're 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 in their role to help and support and make others great. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the people I want to hang out with and, and spend. That's why I like I've always enjoyed your company, because this is what you do. This is how this is how you built your culture. Right. I think that, you know, looking for opportunities as we get older and we, you know, we tick off the box of, let's say, financial security or we're, we're on our way or we're, we're moving towards that. I think we need to augment that with giving back and looking for ways to find the causes and different things in our life that we can put our fingerprints on to create legacy because we are our most beautiful when we're, when we're pouring our lives out for other people. That's what I think is great. And, you know, I, I'm constantly striving after personal stuff. Like, you know, I've got business objectives and there's a certain amount of people I want to hit. That's my passion. I want to speak to as many people as possible and ignite difference makers by telling them a story about possibility and transformation. And it's not about my sad little story. Everybody's got a story. It's about that possibility that lies inside each and every one of them. So, 
you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, talking about mental health, talking about addiction, uh, delivering, you know, keynotes and, and stuff, you know, part of which we shared today, uh, because people are hungry for that right now. They want to know what to do next to create change. They want to know what to do to release the stress and overwhelm that, you know, maybe has crowded them due to COVID. Um, so there's lots of lots of good stuff there. And then on a personal side of things, I'm I picked a fight with some pretty big um, uh, fitness goals. I'm actually I did an Ironman during the pandemic last year. Now I wasn't in a race, but I remember actually, a conversation we had when I asked you about that when you came back from that walk. I go, well, there's no hope for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, the funny thing is, I walked across Canada and didn't lose a pound. So for any of you out there that are counting your ten thousand steps today, give it up. Throw away the pedometer. There's no hope. No, I'm, just, I'm kidding. <laughs> it wasn't until I got holistic and took a look at a lot of other areas. I've always used food as a medicator. I mean, I eat when I'm happy. I eat when I'm sad. I just, and I love food. I love food and I love people. Um, problem is, as I get older, I've got, you know, it's competing uh, desires. Like, do I want good health or do I want, you know, do I want to enjoy that, you know, that food? So, but yeah, I got, I got real, you know, it's also, di it's also difficult to run marathons when you're 30, 40 pounds overweight. So, I tackled that, lost 60 pounds, and now I'm doing Ironmans. And you know what? There's three things, three things that people could do right now if they're looking to improve their life. Better sleep, better nutrition, and get your butt off the couch. Just do those three things. You don't have to do no Ironman. Go for a 5K walk. Have a smoothie instead of French fries and get the sleep, especially those drivers out there that are listening to this, those guns, those people who are just high performers who say, ah, sleep is for, I'll get sleep when I'm dead. Uh-uh. There's so much research on this. You got to get your sleep, especially if, you know, like your productivity, we're going to end up getting through COVID and, you know, the productivity begins to slip and slide uh, when, when we, when we don't get that, you know, that really good sleep. And, and so, yeah, anyways, I'm, I'm on a soapbox, but those, those three things, you know, I teach a course on stress and recovery and there's lots of really good stuff in there, stuff from the walk across Canada, what I got right, what I got wrong stuff around Sean's PhD work, you know, the science of stress and recovery. But the, if I, if there's one little, you know, nugget that I give people, it's those three things, look at your nutrition, look at your sleep and make sure you're moving your body. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I want to just quickly uh, give a shout out to Arlene. I loved her uh, comment. I prayed for help for my son, an addict on the streets of Vancouver, and he sent Gus, Constable Scott McLeod and Marie. So uh, to all the uh, uh, people out there who, you know, who, who are- Do you know who Arlene is? Who? No. That's my mom. You're kidding me. I did not know that. You are mom, Arlene. <laughs> it's so nice to have you. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't know if you're, uh, you know, just a- uh, uh, uh someone from uh from the public or you were with uh, one of our groups mom i love your son he's a dear friend of mine you should be incredibly proud and you are the epitome of what you know what every mom you know shouldn't could be when joe was at his darkest days what did he do he called mom good old mom it, it's that's a very very special relationship right. joe i loved having you today you were absolutely incredible i love the story i can never get enough of it i was actually down that day you finished up in vancouver you called me i came down in my car and uh yeah. just before the finish line a few miles up you and i uh, walked down there so been following your story and your stuff for a long time joe and i'm a, I'm a big fan and i think that you just uh, brought a whole bunch of more big fans on today and we appreciate you immensely uh, thanks. Thanks, Gary. It was really uh, an honor, uh, you know, to, to be a part of the, you know, when I looked at the, the, the guests that you've had, you got some really, 
you know, good caliber people to come on and share ideas. And so I'm just humbled to, to be uh, included in that roster. So thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, you know what, bud? You you are you are so impactful, so powerful, so authentic and genuine. Uh, your story resonates with so many of us in so many different levels. So, uh, just again, on behalf of all of us, thank you very much. You're going to stick around afterwards for a couple minutes. Um, I also want to thank uh, First National. Uh, we love First Nat. They're a great partner to us, uh, to the gang at First Nat. Uh, keep doing amazing work. I just saw your mobile um, application there that you, uh, not application, your mobile uh, feature that you uh, had. Way to go, First Nat. Very cool, very helpful, and very intuitive. Uh, also, uh, guys, uh, upcoming guests, uh, we have a whole bunch of really, really great news for the entire industry on, uh, Tara, is it the 20th of, uh, sorry, it's June. What is it, Dave? June 8th now? What's the day we have for Todd Duncan? Somebody's going to tell me quickly. You're going to see it. And anyway, we have Todd Duncan back, guys. We're doing a half day with Todd Duncan. We're going to talk about all things. It's available to every single mortgage professional in Canada, regardless of brand, every realtor, anyone who wants to do more business. Uh, really excited about it. We're covering the entire cost uh, for you for a half day with uh, Todd Duncan. One of the topics we're going to talk about is how to win, how to work with your realtor to win every single multiple bidding war right? And a whole bunch of other quandaries and challenges that we're working with today. So that's going to be open. We're going to get that uh, link out. You guys can uh, share and spread that really, really, really quick. Uh, on behalf of uh, my uh, myself, uh, my team, David, the producer, uh, Tara, everyone who uh, does such a great job putting this program together. Thank you guys. And most importantly, to uh, all of our partners, all of our insurers, our lenders, and most importantly, all of our mortgage professionals and their friends, referral sources, and you Canadians who continue to make Dominion Lending Centers Group of Companies Canada's number one mortgage company, $51 billion last year in new mortgage origina origination. Uh, thank you all immensely. We're very grateful and we appreciate all the support. Joey, I'll see you in just a couple of minutes. Thank you. You are an absolute rock star and I love you, dude. Cheers, mate. Cheers.